Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am sitting down with Luke Grauman. He is a financial analyst, someone I've been following for a long time. He's the founder and president of FFTT, which is a financial newsletter um, focusing on the big macro trends. Um, I subscribe to it, a lot of good information in there. And so anyway, Luke, so many questions I have for you and I'm excited to have this conversation today. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm doing great. All right. All right. Good. So yeah, thanks for making the time to come here. So um, I guess before we dive in, I got a bunch of questions because I've been following your stuff for a long time, but uh, maybe just kind of give us uh, the background of what it is that you do and kind of what you're focusing on. Sure. So uh, the way we phrase it is I aggregate a large amount of information from a wide array of, of publicly available uh, data sources and uh, aggregate uh, these data sources in a unique manner, uh, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks. Uh, because I, I spent, uh, prior to founding FFTT in early 2014, spent uh, nearly 20 years uh, in equity research and equity sales on Wall Street. And what I found was that uh, excess returns typically accrued to those sectors that were positioned to either benefit from or if you were short them, be hurt by the economic bottlenecks where things just kind of come to a head. And a perfect example I've used in the past is, look, if you, you could own the best home builder in 2005, and if you own the best home builder in 2005, you only lost 60% of your money instead of 90 or 100% of your money. And Hey, just a real quick interruption to let you know that this video is brought to you ad-free by BlockFi. Now, they're giving you the ability to hodl your Bitcoin and your crypto as it goes up in value, and at the same time, you can earn high-yielding interest on it. So you can basically hold it for all the upside potential, and then you can make cash flow off of it at the exact same same time. Now, opening an account super fast, <clears throat> super simple, and they've offered to give me up to $250 for every signup. But I told them, you know what, let's give it back to you. So you can now go and you can get the $250 whenever you set up your account. And all you have to do is just check the link in the description for details, set up an account super quick and easy and earn up to $250 brought to you by BlockFi. So check them out. You know, vice versa in terms of you know the the fangs, right? If you if you're if you're if you own the worst fang over the last five years, you're still pretty happy. And so there's been this big trend. So we try to focus on uh, from both a macroeconomic and thematic standpoint, identifying these developing bottlenecks for our our clients. And uh, that's that's what we do. It's a it's it's a fun job. I get to read and interact extensively and, and learn every day. And uh, it's, it's really a blessing to be able to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. So for everybody that's tuning in, listening right now, I mean, we're going to go through, um, we're going to talk about deficits, runaway spending, uh, endless money printing. We're going to talk about inflation, deflation, um, assets that could benefit. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we're going to cover. So everyone listening, just make sure you're, you're tuning in all the way to the end. But I'm curious when you talk about economic bottlenecks. So um, I guess you're looking for where money is maybe moving from one asset to the next. I mean, what are you referring to in a bottleneck? Sure, it's a great question. We, it, what we're really looking for is where basically a rock is meeting a hard place, to be blunt. Um, you know, where you're, 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 you get these two tectonic plates or you see things crowding into a, an area where something has to give or where there's some sort of... Um, 
you know, forces building up where there's likely to be some sort of uh, phase change or or significant, um, you know, breakthrough uh, in uh, in economic developments uh, is really how we think about it, right? And so it's, um, you know, I'll use the housing example again. When, you know, 2005, you had a set of circumstances all of a sudden uh, in my former seat when uh, at the firm I was at prior, uh, we started hearing store, stories where credit was being cut off to the consumer. Credit was being cut off to home equity lines. That's an economic bottleneck because all of a sudden you have one set of expectations, which is home prices never fall. At the same time, you have uh, you know the opposite side of credits being cut off. And one of those two things was going to overtake the other. A bottleneck was developing. And of course, the resolution of that bottleneck was home prices fall, so on and so forth. So I, the things that we are focused on trying to identify in terms of what, what, what is a bottleneck. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in Southern California and I was uh, developing uh, real estate in Southern California from 95 till 2005, well, till about 2007. And uh, so I got caught up on the wrong side of that bottleneck. Unfortunately, it was bad in California. We lost in Southern California. We lost. 60% in 12 months. It was insane. Wow. So, oh uh, so, so you saw that and using that, that, uh, that historical reference. So you saw that uh, home building, uh, home investing, home buying. I mean, that was just a runaway freight train. And then the bottleneck was starting to form where credit was like, oh, shoot, credit's backing up. And it's probably going to, like you said, something has to give. So then you see, you see an event like that. And then you go, okay, something's going to give here. Uh, most likely the, the runaway freight train is going to hit the brakes or, or go off the tracks. Right. And so then you look, you see that happening and then you decide to like get in a position where you could benefit from that, maybe raising cash to take advantage of the drop or, or something like that. Yep. That's exactly right. And that's what we're trying to do. And there's, we lay it out as, you know, here's fact. We, we don't start with a thesis. We start with observing. I'm just, I, I've equated myself to being, you know, the catfish at the bottom of the river. I'm just kind of laying down there and I'm just waiting for stuff to float downstream and see, you know, the way we do, we do our work is I just read extensively eight to 10 hours a day and I'm trying to, and, and I don't know what I'm looking for, but when I, I see things, uh, I put them in a cutting room and then I get to time product. And I see, okay, here's this, here's this, here's this. What is, is there anything here? What's this telling me? And uh, I've always been blessed to be able to connect dots. Uh, a number of clients say you have a PhD in ABC. There's a range of potential outcomes, and this could happen, that could happen. This this asset could win, this asset could lose. However you you know, however you want to play that. If you want to be aggressive, you can short things. If you want to be conservative, you raise cash. If you want to, you know, or on the other side, hey, here's the. You know, here's the real crazy way to get long. Here's the sort of chicken way to get long. Um, something that's set to benefit from some sort of bottleneck like that. But that's how we go about our process. Yeah. So growing up in Southern California, I'm a surfer. My family is all surfers. All we do is take surfing trips and surfing vacations. We chase storms all around the world to find the big waves. And so I kind of equate my investing similar where like, I'm just trying to read the where the storms are. So I see a storm forming in Fiji. I know in two weeks, it's going to send waves to a certain area. And then I'll go there, wait for that wave. And then I'm just going to ride it. Right? <laughs> I'm not trying to create a wave, but I see where the storms are forming. I, I position myself to where those waves come in. And then I go ride them. So uh, that's a similar. great metaphor. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, uh, just as a side note, you say you spend about eight hours a day um, reading. How the heck do you find so much time to tweet? <laughs> <laughs> some of the reading i do is on twitter um, okay yeah you know for whatever reason um i can read really fast uh and retain key pieces of content 
Uh, and I don't know, it's just something I've always been able to do. And so it's, you know, I'm there for a bit and then there'll be areas and you'll, you can, I'm sure if they had analytics on my Twitter activity, you can see when I'm reading, when I'm writing, when I'm, you know, when I'm, because it's, you know, high intensity, nothing, high, you know, so it tends to be, uh, you know, a hundred or zero. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a little bit of both in-depth sort of real deep cycle reading, if you will. And then there's also the, you know, scanning the, uh, you know, scanning the Twitter feed for, for sort of like the energy off the Twitter feed. You can kind of feel things of, okay, where is the mood? Where is, and I think there's real value to that. And I think it's something that y y you kind of learn over time or, or, or can feel over time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you have a quote on your website that says, um, before you proceed, step back and look at the big picture. So um, when we're, when you're stepped back today, um, what is the big picture that you're seeing? Or, or maybe a better question is where's the big bottleneck that's being formed right now that you're kind of focusing on? Sure. So when I step back, I look back to, you know, I started in this business in 1995, I think. And we had a, the, uh, the, the, the equity bubble, uh, dot-com and equity bubble burst in 2000. And policymakers, you famously, Paul Krugman wrote an article about it. Paul McCauley at PIMCO wrote about it. We need to create a housing bubble to offset the demand from the equity bubble bursting. Okay. Objectively, you look at the math, it makes sense. So we had an equity bubble, they kicked the problem upstairs to the housing market and by extension, the banking system because the banks are lending, making loans to the housing market. That bubble bursts. We then kick that problem upstairs via the bailouts to the sovereign level. So now governments are backstopping the banking system, varying degrees of credit market, sovereign debt market. And so now we, when you objectively take a step back and take a look, Everyone says, well, the bubble's in Bitcoin, or the bubble's in housing, or the bubble's in stocks, or the bubble's in everything. And everything. the bubble's in everything, but the, the, the thing that an everything bubble is, is the bubble's in the currency. The bubble's in the sovereign debt, and by extension, the currency. And so, because, and one, the reason I say that is, we've kicked one bubble upstairs, and then we kicked another bubble, that bubble upstairs to the sovereign, and it's, you know, you and I look to be, you know, probably about the same age. You remember, you know, Superman growing up, right? Where the, the, the Clark Kent and, and Lois Lane falls out of the building and he catches her and he's, I gotcha. And she says, who's got you? And so in 2008, the government caught the global economy. And this is around the world said, I gotcha. And I think we're now getting to the point where people are realizing no one has them. Uh, you know, no one has a sovereign bond market. And so if you look fundamentally, if I just took a step back and said, I'm going to describe uh, the, the offering documents of the tre U.S. Treasury bond. Okay, so you get less than zero, less than 1% for 10 years. Issuance of Treasury bonds has risen 9.5% over the last 12 years. CAGR. So your issuance is growing. You're not being, so your issuance is growing at an 800 basis point premium to your interest rate. Uh, this is a entity, the U.S. government, that is 135% debt to GDP. And now that's debt to GDP. Let's look at it on a, on a float of, uh, if you look at it on a, uh, uh, really the way you would look at a business, and then people say you can't look at a business, but just for sake of argument, if we looked at it as a security, if we looked at it as an actual security, you would say, okay, U.S. tax receipts are $3.3 trillion and debt is $27 trillion. So the tax receipts are really just revenues, right? So you have an entity that's paying you one per less than 1%. The debt of that entity is growing at 9% CAGR last 12 years. 
the outstanding debt this entity has is nine times revenues. The OPEB liabilities, which are uh, pension and uh, pension obligations in, in the private sector, the OPEB liabilities of this entity are somewhere between 100 and 200 trillion dollars, or 30 to 60 times revenues. Yeah. And it's an entity that has not turned a profit, run a surplus, in 20 plus years, and really only three times in the past 55 years. And so, when, if you took a step back and looked at this, and this is the entity backstopping the whole shooting match, you go, oh my God, there's, and, and it's, I'm picking on the US because the US is in the worst shape um, other than Japan, uh, but it's a, a similar problem around the world. And I also pick on the US because the US is the reserve currency. And when I say the pro, when you say, everyone's saying it's an everything bubble, well, it's, it's like if you asked a fish to describe its environment, the very last thing the fish would describe would be the water. And so right. everyone's busy pointing, well, there's a bubble over here and there's a bubble over there and there's a bubble over here. And to us, the bottleneck, the big bottleneck, and I think it's the biggest bottleneck in a hundred years is it's, it's the sovereign debt market. It's the treasury market. It's the sovereign debt market more broadly. And by extension, it's the currency because ultimately one of two things going to happen. If you say there's a sovereign debt bubble and you, you can see um, there's a great uh, IMF white paper put together by uh, uh, Carmen Reinhart and Bellin Sabrancia from, I want to say 2015. And the title of the report is The Liquidation of Government Debt. So it's funny, they, they've been telling us what they're going to do for the last five years. And the um, really the, uh, uh, one of the key charts, and it, it, as, a, as a subscriber to our, our uh, uh, Tree Rings newsletter, You've probably seen the chart, but it shows sovereign debt to GDP levels going back 120 years for advanced economies and for devel developing economies. And once you get to the levels we're at now, which are really unprecedented in 120 years in the advanced economies, ironically, emerging markets are actually much better off right now than advanced economies. There's only a few ways out of this. It is default or restructuring, inflation or, or financial repression, or hyperinflation. And that's it. And so you say, okay, well, basically, we kicked the equity bubble up to the banking sector. We kicked the banking and housing bubble up to the sovereign level. Now we have a sovereign debt bubble. And one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to default on, on the sovereign debt, and you say, okay, well, the odds of that happening are, are slim and none in my view. And if, if you believe that, as I do, then by default, the bubble is in the currency because you know the central bank and the central banks are going to create as much currency as needed to keep that entity we were just describing before who has impossibly large obligations relative to revenues uh, to, keep, to keep those bonds money good, nominally money good. And so I think that is really, when I take a step back, to me it is the biggest big trade, like I said, in 100 years because we really haven't had a global sovereign debt bubble uh, since in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Uh, and in those cases, sovereign debt basically went down 75 to 100% against gold, the neutral reserve asset at the time, um, through the currency, through currency depreciation, anywhere from 18 months later to 12 years later. But they all, one after the other, fell. And I think that's where we are, which has a, a whole different, um, a whole number of different implications, as we were talking about before, in terms of what that means for a number of things. So I'll, I'll pause there because I, I, I went on for a bit, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a really important thing to be aware of.
Yeah. So yeah, for sure. It's, it's the bottleneck that's forming. And then I guess it just really comes down to how you interpret that or, or what you think happens. Now, um, a couple of things. One, one thing I want to jump back to what you said, where you said that um, if you looked at the government like a business, or if you looked at it like a household or whatever, and, and people say that you can't do that. Um, right. But I think that you can, and, and you probably should, because we actually live in a world with laws and constraints and like, not just man-made laws, but like natural laws right. and, and constraints. And so um, there's a quote that says, uh, you can choose to ignore reality, but you cannot ignore um, the consequences of reality. And so, yeah. um, and so um, it, I kind of agree with you. What would you say to people who say that you can't look at the government like a business or like a household? Why, why is it different? And why should why is that wrong? Why should we look at it that way? So in the short run, those people are right. And the short run can run for many decades and has run for many decades. In the long run, those people are wrong. And they're wrong for the, exactly the reasons you just said, which is there are ultimately constraints on the system that manifest as either where government spending interfaces with um, reality. In other words, uh, it needs to buy you know, raw materials, um, whether you know you talk about things like climate change, whether you talk about things um, like demographics, um, where the where it interfaces with the real world is where they're wrong, and they tend to be very very right for a very long time, and then they tend to be very very wrong in a very compressed period of time, and those compressed periods of time um, tend to be fourth turnings, um, you know, where we're at to, to sort of mix my metaphors. So to dig into that a little bit you look at it and in a purely fiat currency system the reason i say they're right is ultimately the government on some level does need to um take the other side right this is sort of the keynesian if, if the private sector just all stops all at once you go into sort of this uh death spiral depression etc and, and we saw that in the 30s we saw that i want to say in the 1870s or 1880s um where it just drags on and on and on and there's severe social costs and Ultimately, if you let those things go on too far, there tend to be uh, very draconian political costs um, where extremists get elected. And, and it, so that's, I, I think the idea that the government shouldn't be run as a business or, 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 um, or the idea that the government shouldn't be run as a business has some merit or has some good things to it from that standpoint. They're, you know, it, it, at its core, they're trying to avoid sort of this long depression where you get into these political extremism and, and, and very bad things happening. However, the genesis of that has then morphs into, well, we can do whatever we want for as long as we want. We don't have to, you know, Keynesian was originally, we, we the government offsets the private sector in the good, in the bad times. Right. And then when the private sector's humming, it, it, pulls its, it pulls in the reins. And that has morphed into the government spends a lot when times are good and it spends a lot a lot when times are bad yep and that ultimately is where the problem comes and you saw that really on a globe you you've seen it globally for the first time since after world war one where basically during war into world war one everybody was on a gold standard of some sort and then everyone the hostility started the first thing everybody did was go off gold so they can create whatever obligation you don't want to lose a war for lack of gold convertibility which is is understandable you know again when you're acting for what's directly in front of you and everybody said well when we win we'll make the other guys pay for it right. and and so everybody said when we win we're gonna make the other guys pay and 
of course, one side won, one side lost, they made them pay. Um, but then we get into this political cost and you could never really get back to where you were. Um, and that bursting of that sovereign debt, it, lead, it led to the bursting of the global sovereign debt bubble back then where there was this belief going into the war, we'll make the other side pay. Well, by the time the war's over, the other side's broke. Uh, and, and not just broke, you know, the gold's gone, there, there's things destroyed, you've had a lost generation of output, a lost generation of men, um, political disruption in, in Germany and, and Austria, just a complete non, non-capacity to pay. So if Germany can't pay, then all of a sudden UK's broke too, and America has led money to all of them, and America's not getting their money, UK's not getting their money, France is not getting their money, and the Germans don't have any money. And so the whole system, that's where this, the government can do this and shouldn't be run as a business, it's, I think, the, really the last example of that happening um, where the natural laws just intervened. And once that happened, then you're left with, do we default on the debt or do we hyperinflate? And yeah. uh, that's where you get to the point where the promises of the sovereign went to, you know, down 75 to 100% versus gold over a relatively short span of time. And that's Again, long period of time doesn't matter, and then it matters a lot. And the long period of time, and then it matters a lot. Yep. So I want to get into some specifics, and we'll talk about the debt-to-GDP ratios. We'll talk about uh, what that means to gold, what the Fed wants to do with gold, uh, Bitcoin, all those things, and try to get into a little bit more specifics. But before we do, I just want to dive in a little bit deeper just onto this, because you mentioned Keynesian economics. And so the government's supposed to spend and kind of even out the gap, so to speak, right? right. Um, the other, the opposite kind of school of thought, the Austrian economics, which a lot of people don't really know a lot about today, but being in the gold and Bitcoin, you understand that. And I'm just curious what lens you're looking at this from, because um, Ken, uh, Keynesian believes we can just like spend and then that kind of morphs into this MMT theory where we can just create as much money as we want. Austrians believe that, well, money isn't wealth. Wealth is goods and services, and you just create more money, and it's chasing the same goods and services, which obviously creates that inflation. And so the problem is, you talk about this sovereign debt bubble or this currency bubble, but governments can't just print. Creating currency doesn't create wealth. It's not, it's not money or whatever you want to use that as a word, but Keynesians and MMT believe you can. I'm, I'm curious where you fall on that and how you look at those two things versus compared to where we are today and, and what we're talking about with the government's printing unlimited amounts of currency. So I, I think when you think about the, the, the Keynesians tend to be right, they tend to be very right for very long periods of time, and then they tend to be very, very wrong when their policies cause the currency to break. Um, and the Austrians tend to be wrong and cold hard, seen as cold-hearted for long periods of time, and then proven spectacularly right. You know, the, the, the uh, was it Hayek or von Mises who said there's, there's no means of stopping a debt bubble that you either have to, you know, go into a deflation and, and work it off or you have a complete catastrophe of the currency system involved. And, and um, where I come down on it, I, I have influences of both. And to me, um, I tend to try to be as pragmatic as possible. And, and while also working that in the context of where the Austrians tend to be right in the end. Um, and the, the because, of, because, of the nat- because of the natural laws. It's because of the natural laws, and it's and when you talk about the natural laws, the problem with the Keynesian and the MMT view is if you're going to uh, say the government can, can can control as much or create as much currency as they want and do whatever they want, 
You're right, but there's an important caveat to that that they always leave out, uh, some because they don't know, some uh, for maybe more sinister reasons, but if you're going to allow the unbridled emission of currency, you have to maintain control over very sensitive subjects like population growth, um, uh, emissions of, of, of raw material. You basically have to centrally plan. If you're gonna centrally plan your, your, your money emission, but you don't centrally plan these natural rules, like I said, population growth, et cetera, because really what MMT, what, what Keynesians are doing is fooling, right? They're, they're, they're pulling forward demand. They are distorting economic signals in the short run to try to smooth it. They're making people believe things are actually better than they are by adjusting the amount of these signals in the market, which when a, trying to basically achieve certain goals of smoothing on a modest level, okay. Um, when you're trying to prevent real bad political outcomes, okay. But the problem is at some point you've got to go back to letting the market really, because if you get so far away from those natural laws, you get to a point where reversing the Keynesian policies would be catastrophic uh, in a human toll, in a human cost. And at that point, you're in this position which either you kill the currency or you have a really, really bad outcome on the human cost and the natural law cost. And they always choose the currency because nobody, right? And so it really, when you say, am I Austrian or am I Keynesian? I understand, I try to understand both views really well. And I marry that with the understanding of history and the understanding of human nature. And so what I mean by that is people say, well, is it the Fed's fault? Or, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you harder on the Fed? And why aren't you, you know, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's nobody's fault. It's human nature. You go back through time, time immemorial, it's, 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 it's greed and it's fear and it's greed and it's fear. And it never changes. We may be smarter, we may have more tech, we may have cars, we may be able to have you know, magic phones or we can talk to people wireless. End of the day, it's the same story as a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, 5,000, greed, fear. Sure. And so the challenge is that if you understand it's greed and fear, what you find is that the amount of political courage that is needed for a person or a small group of people to really step up and do the very difficult things politically to stop this train, right? This, well, we'll just spend a little more. We'll just spend it. Be, the, the, the amount of people in history uh, that can stop this politically, there's just not that many politically, you know, there are not that many politically brave people to start with. And when you get into a representative democracy, doesn't exist. And then when you get into a representative democracy where the government's, you know, where it's purely fiat and where the debt of the government itself is the reserve asset, like it's been in the United States since 1971, you are directly getting paid a lot of money not to stop this train. You are being paid to accelerate this train. And so it's really, I try to, I don't try to go Keynesian or, or Austrian. I want to understand both well and then understand it with this overlay of human nature. And when you do that, it's it can be disconcerting but you just realize you try to you try to be as objective i try to be as objective it is what it is it and is human nature and, and okay 
this is what's going to happen. Right? If this is how, you know, it's like Jerry Maguire, right? If this is where it's going to happen, this is where it's going to happen. And at that point, I, it, I just try to take that approach for my clients, for my readers and say, look, this is, this is where we're going. I, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, it's all the Fed's fault. If, everyone's got a little hand. We all got a hand in this. Um, you know, if, if you, if you like your entitlement, if you like your mortgage deduction, if you like, you know, if you, whatever it is, so, you know, every, it, it gets hard to stop. And so that's where I shake out on it really. I, I understand being pragmatic. And I often say that, you know, we, we can't invest as we want things to be, or as we think things should be, but just as they are, it is what it is. As you said, the only thing though, is I think depending on which way you view it, um, it can shift the way you look at the outcome. Because if you believe that Kenzie and MMT will work, well then shoot, this can just go on forever. But if you understand that it can't, uh, that it doesn't work like more Austrian, you'll realize that this is probably coming to a head pretty soon. Yes, so, exactly. So it does change what you, in, how you interpret the data. It is what it is, but um, so, so to set this up a little bit, you know, um, the debt to GDP is exploding. You talked about, um, you know, these entitlements that we have. I heard you uh, talking about like the big three that the government, you know, non-negotiables, I think you called them, right? Which is yep. the interest on the debt, the military and the entitlements. Yep. And so those three are like 140% of, of income, of tax receipts, of, of, yep. of, of, of income, right? Um, and so we have that. And you've also mentioned how the government's never brought the debt down. The debt has only gone up, right? So it's only <laughs> going up. Now we're at 140%. Um, and so... Now they're saying that, well, shoot, if we can grow the balance sheet, um, you know, below the GDP growth, we could probably just keep this going forever. And so given that, I mean, how, how are you looking at this debt to GDP model? I mean, we're, we're ready to just explode <laughs> it. I mean, that's their license to just keep printing money. It's incredible, right? So two or three weeks ago, um, you had a meeting of the minds with the Brookings Institute and the Peterson Institute, two of the biggest think tanks in Washington, really almost bipartisan, right? The Peterson tends to be pretty fiscally conservative. Brookings may be a little bit more uh, Keynesian. Um, and, and they did a Zoom call and it was Bernanke and Summers and Rogoff and Blanchard and Jason Furman, who was is probably the least known of those, but he was a, a chief economic advisor to President Obama. Uh, and and so you've got two former IMF chief economists, former head of the Fed, former uh, head of, uh, or former secretary of the treasury and, and the head of the Obama uh, economic advisors. And they all agree on the same thing, which is the debt isn't a problem as long as we look at the NPV, the net present value of US GDP, which if we use the CBO's data, on interest rates is about 3.9 quadrillion dollars. And then at that rate, the 27 trillion is, is not that bad against 3.9 quadrillion dollars. Um, but, and they went on to say that if we can, if, if the rate of growth, if the interest rate we pay on the debt is below the rate of nominal GDP growth, then the NPV of, of GDP is infinite and debt doesn't matter at all. Sure. And you go, holy cow, um, and now, Academically, their math is 100% right. They are absolutely right that as long as rates are below growth, it doesn't matter. So then you go, what they're leaving out is how are they going to keep rates below growth? What idiot is going to hold a, you know, a 1%, a 10-year treasury bond yielding 90 basis points when GDP is four or three or two even for any extended period? 
rate, you want a positive real rate. Otherwise you are losing real purchasing power. And the answer, they don't, they never address the issue, which to me, um, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things where when somebody doesn't say something obvious, it's because they don't have to. It's because you know the answer already, you know, don't make them say it. It's, you know, you have to yield ask curve, how much it is. Yield curve yeah. control. What's that? Yield, cor- yield curve control. <laughs> That's exactly where this is going. They are, they know they're going to keep R, the rate of interest, below G, the rate of growth on nominal GDP growth. And, and it's, it was a fascinating thing to me because it was just further confirmation. We've been writing about this for years, saying, look, as this debt problem gets worse, there's one way out of this. They're going to cap yields. They're going to do what they did after World War II. Real rates, real interest rates, which is a rate nominal rate interest rate minus inflation, is going to get really, really negative. And uh, to hear these really luminaries just talk about this, just so lackadaisically. So to just, just well, this as long as long as you know, GDP is infinite. Now MPV of GDP is infinite. We keep our below G. And you go. They're, they're planning to whatever they have to do. When you say, okay, well, what, how do they keep R below G? The release valves to the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet is what's going to go up. Um, you know, the dollar is going to be the release valve. The dollar is going to go down. And that's, they're telling you what the game plan is. And it's, it really is, you know, when you talk about bottlenecks, the bottlenecks, the debt, and there's a couple different ways it can be released. So we talked about deflation, restructuring, uh, uh, inflation or hyperinflation. And so they're, they're telling you they're going to financially repress bondholders. And the risk is if this gets away from them, that they have, you know, a hyperinflation of sorts, um, potentially. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they put themselves in, in between a rock and a hard place. And there's really only one or two options uh, for them to continue going. Um, and we kind of know, as you said, human nature. So we kind of know which, which path they're going to choose. And now we've seen the Fed take on um, social justice issues. So now they're, you know, I said uh, when the whole, when all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, right? And so <laughs> now they want to fix gender inequality, income inequality, you know, climate change, but all they have is a monetary tool or a fiscal tool, I guess now supposedly or whatever. So um, that just only accelerates the problem, I guess, at this point. I, I think so. I, you know, people have asked me, I mean, for me, the Fed needs, the balance sheet needs to grow. And for the balance sheet to keep growing in a recovery, you need to find other narratives that cover the political. Uh, why, does the ba- why does the balance sheet need to continue to grow? The balance sheet needs to continue to grow if the United States is not going to default on either entitlements, slash its defense budget, uh, or default on treasuries. In other words, um, if the if foreigners continue to not buy enough treasuries and they really can't when you look at it we're running a three trillion dollar deficit this year um normalized say gdp really takes off maybe it's a trillion and a half two we get back there you still look at that number and you go nobody else in the world has the balance sheet to buy though that kind of debt and they certainly don't have the balance sheet to buy that kind of debt at negative real rates where we are stealing money back from them right and so the release valve has to be the dollar. It had, you got to get the dollar down to reduce the deficits or reduce the carrying cost of those deficits, uh, the ability of those, the, those other countries to buy those deficits if they want to. And if not, in the meantime, someone has to buy them. And if we, the U.S. does not have the private sector balance sheet either, that's ultimately why repo rates spiked last fall. It's ultimately why the Fed had to, it's why treasury rates 
began rising sharply in March as stocks crashed. The treasury market started crashing along with it. The issue is nobody has the balance sheet. At that point, everybody turned seller. Uh, foreigners turned seller, a treasury turned seller, and the only person to buy is the Fed. And so that's why the balance sheet has to rise. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, you have a kind of a unique take on gold's role in this and um, why, what they may want to do with gold to kind of prevent that. But before we dip into that, I want to just talk about, um, talk about inflation. And so the Fed keeps saying they can't get inflation. They can't get inflation. Um, they're going to let it run hot. They're going to now average it out over years, all these different things. Um, but they go off of CPI, right? But the CPI and the CPI continues to change, right? In the eighties, it changed in the nineties, it changed. Um, but at the same time, you and I, everybody that spends money knows that prices have gone absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm in Southern California. Homes have doubled in three in the last three years. They've doubled. So the dollar has dropped, you know, double. Uh, right now, if you try to buy a used car, an RV, a boat, I mean, good luck. The prices have gone 200%. Bicycles, mountain bikes. I mean, you name it. Uh, my, I'm, a, I'm a surfer. My surfboard shaper. They have 1,500 boards on back order they can't fill right now. Like prices are going astronomical, everything. I mean, you name it, right? Food. I used to go to lunch for five bucks. It's 12 bucks today. I mean, hey, just another quick interruption to let you know that this video is brought to you ad free by BlockFi. Now they allow you to hold onto your Bitcoin and your other cryptos for all the potential upside. And at the same time, you can earn high yielding interest on it. So it basically cash flows. Now with BlockFi, you can earn up to 8.6% interest. You can also borrow against your crypto as well. It's super fast. It's super easy to set up an account. And right now you can get up to $250 when you set up your account. Check the link in the description that I have for details in order to claim that $250 because BlockFi is the future of finance. Just check the link in the description for all the details of how to claim your $250 today. So how do you look at that? I mean, people say, well, you don't understand CPI because CPI really encompasses all these things, but I also understand that it substitutes things and it changes. And if we look at how we measured it in the eighties, we show massive inflation. So when we talk about coming inflation and what they're doing, and, and as you said, that's one of the options is inflation. But then people would argue, no, we're not having it because look at CPI. How do you reconcile what people are really seeing versus what the government's reporting? So one of the things about government, again, this is, goes back time immemorial. Once the government starts to run into fiscal problems, one of the first tricks is to start tinkering with CPI, right? The, the inflation rate. Um, and it's critically important in a, in, a, in a government that's a massive debtor, and particularly when the government that's a massive debtor like the United States, when the basis of their economy is so highly financialized, so highly interest rate sensitive, mm -hmm. it makes it doubly important to uh, make sure that the CPI is being calculated in service to the bond market, which is to say, you need, you know, they're goal seeking it. Uh, we can debate how much they're moving it to goal seek it, uh, but they're goal seeking it. And the, the, the CPI needs to be some level that is okay, showing that the Fed is making gains, but, you know, and their policy to increase inflation, but not so much that the bond market freaks out because if the bond market freaks out, the US government can't pay its bills because when you, once you're 135% debt to GDP, your interest and, and your GDP, by the way, is highly interest rate sensitive. So the higher rates go, the lower your GDP is going to go uh, and the higher your interest is going to go. Uh, it, it's they're stuck between this rock and a hard place of we need to show the Fed having some success and we need to also make sure that the government 
you know, is not insolvent because rates are rising. And so I think the first answer is, is it's, it's being goal-seeked and has been goal-seeked for a long time. And I think as the long, you know, you look at the history and you can see it into the things you were just describing, the longer this game goes on, the more egregious the goal-seeking gets. And ultimately, it ties back to our, the earlier conversation we had about the natural world, the, the, the real world, the natural laws. And it was interesting. I had a chart. I did a presentation end of 2017, and I borrowed a chart that Ray Dalio put out publicly, and it showed um, the amount of populism in, in Western elections. And it showed like 1931, it was a, a real high number, and then it sort of trended down, and it was very low Western populism for the next 80 years. And then all of a sudden, in 2015, 2016, you have all these populist outcomes, Brexit, and Trump, and, and so on and so forth. And my point is, uh, with that, with what I made when I showed that chart was, CPI is low, right? CPI is low, CPI is low, C we need higher CPI. The election outcome, the natural world is telling you that real living standards have been falling for an extended period of time, because the only time you get political populism is when real living standards fall for an extended period of time. Now in the 30s, you were having real living standards fall from deflation. Um, they were falling nominally. Uh, now we've had this, you know, there's a chart, uh, another chart I used in a presentation earlier this year, it was a Bank of America chart, and it shows um, the cost of thriving index, right? So we can argue, all right, you know, you need a car, you need education, you need a house, you need, you know, so there's, the, we can argue the list of goods that they have, is that thriving, is that luxury, whatever. The point was this, 1985, it was 55% of the median household income, and it's now, or excuse me, the, uh, in 1985, it took 25 weeks of the median household income to afford these things. And in 2018 or 2020, it's now 53 weeks. The problem being there's only 52 weeks in a year. Sure. And this, this then ties into that natural law. So at any rate, what I'm saying is, is that the populism we're seeing would tell you the inflation is being, and that's where we're seeing it show up. Um, that's, the first, that's the first warning signal in my view. Yeah, I mean, pre, uh, pre-pandemic, I think there was eight countries in the world that had over a million people each protesting. Um, so obviously, Hong Kong, we know about, obviously, Lebanon, Argentina, Venezuela, um, all through Europe, France had it. I mean, there was eight countries with a million people each. And, and it's happening still today. We just don't hear a lot about it. But uh, we'll, we'll kind of move past that. But, but to summarize what you were saying, I guess, is kind of what I was saying, which is we are seeing inflation and we can see that expressed through popul populism. Um, even though the CPI may not be showing it. 100%. So, um, yeah, so that's interesting. Now, um, digging into gold a little bit. So you've talked about how um, central banks might actually want or need to see gold's price rise, which seems really weird because most people would think that gold is the enemy of the Fed, right? They want us to use this fake money, not gold. Um, and they've probably worked really hard to manipulate the price of gold down. But you're, you have this theory, I think, if I'm reading it correctly, that you think there's a reason why the Fed might actually need or want the price of gold to go up. Yeah, I think, I think they actually do. And I think it's one of these things where, again, it's a long cycle thing where, you know, the Keynesians are right for a long time and then the Austrians are right. And not, you know, it's the same type of dynamic here where for a long period of time, gold is the enemy. And then once you get too far into this fiat debasement thing, Mm -hmm. They need negative real rates. Uh, they need to demonstrate that real rates are significantly negative. 
Um, and if you look at the correlation between real rates, if you invert them and then you put it over the gold price, it is perfectly, it, it is perfectly uh, uh, correlated nearly. And so when we talk about what Rogoff and, and Blanchard and all these guys just said on, on in Bernanke and Summers and just said is we need R below G, right? We need the rate of interest below growth or else we're screwed. The rate of interest below growth or we're screwed and gold not and gold being flat to down, those are mutually exclusive because if gold's flat to down, real rates are rising. And so if gold is actually falling, what it's telling you is real rates are rising. What it's telling you is the US's fiscal situation, Western sovereign's fiscal situation more broadly is becoming more untenable. Because once you're at these debt levels, if you have positive real rates, they're done, it's over. They're, they're gonna default or their Fed's gonna have to buy it all at some point in the not too distant future with printed money. And so that's why I say that is that ultimately, um, gold rising helps these guys. It creates the view in the market of hey gold's rising real rates you know inflation they it, it starts to change that mentality in a market-based way right the you, you start getting gold going the algos are going to start oh real rates are getting worse real rates are getting worse and and that that paradoxically helps them got it that's interesting so if we start trying to figure now that we've kind of identified these bottlenecks the governments have been defaulting for 50 plus years. The, the debt's continuing to explode. We know human nature, rocking a hard place. They have to do it. There's the release valve and you've kind of given it, you know, two options, right? Inflation or deflation. And that seems to be the raging debate. Everybody wants to know. Um, I think it's a more nuanced argument than just one or the other. I mean, maybe it's both. Um, maybe, maybe we have massive deflation, but we also see prices going through the roof at the same time or something. Uh, but what do you see? So you, you've given us, hey, there's two options, right? Two release valves. Um, which one are you leaning towards, I guess, in your, your uh, end game there? I, I lean towards inflation. And, you know, in that, it's something we've long been saying and reading about, which is governments owe a bunch of money and they're unlikely to default on those promises. And so they're likely to print those promises. And, and as they do that, people say, well, the banks aren't lending. You know, then so the deflationary outcome, the banks aren't lending. To the private sector, they're right. Overall, they're right. When you look at the data, though, of bank lending, what you see is really interesting, which is overall uh, bank uh, loan growth has been flat to down this year. Last I checked, it was running down. Uh, however, within that, there are loans to the U.S. government. There are holdings of U.S. treasuries. And, and bank holding of treasury is a loan to the government. Um, some people would argue that. I don't think it's an argument at all. You own a bond, a bond is no different than a loan. Uh, holdings of treasuries by the US banking system have been rising 20 to 50% year over year at an annualized rate this year, mm -hmm. uh, as you look from May on. And so while overall lending is flat to down, underneath you've got the biggest debtor borrowing more and more. And people say, well, that's just borrowing, it's not spending. Well, yeah, I, with this hand. What's the government doing with the money? They're spending it. <laughs> right. And they're just adding it to the total, right? They, they never pay that debt off. And so I think we're in this sort of transition period where we're starting to see inflation. It's not obvious yet, uh, but at once there's that sort of magic crossover point where the majority of bank balance sheets uh, become treasuries, right? So right now it's, I wanna say five, 7% of the banking system is treasuries. 
1946, it was 50 percent treasuries. Right. And I, that's where I think this movie's going. And when that happens, then, you know, as that happens, there's a crossover point where all of a sudden loan growth is growing. People go, oh my gosh, bank loan growth is growing. And they're going to go look and say, where is it growing at? And they're going to go, oh God, it's the government. And every year the government, we know the government's going to spend more because there's 70 million baby boomers and they're owed that money. And the defense department's in a great power company with China. They're going to spend that money. And the interest is the interest. Rates are already zero. That Whatever that nut is ain't going any lower in all likelihood. Um, and so that's, I, I think we're really in a transition period where you're seeing signs of inflation. We've talked about the, the, you know, the hidden inflation, if you will. But I think it's going to start to become more obvious as the U.S. and specifically, but Western sovereigns more broadly, uh, basically have, as these promises they've made go from off balance sheet to on balance sheet, right? When you talk about the 100 trillion, 200 trillion in entitlements, it was all held off balance sheet. And there's very little in reserve that was held against it. And so as those, because of demographics, come on balance sheet, that's cash out. That is a treasury that needs to be bought by somebody, probably the Fed or the U.S. banking system, uh, all else equal. Um, then I think we're going to start transitioning to a much more inflationary period over the next, you know, couple, you know, 12, 18 months, 24 months, and then beyond. Okay, good. So that was going to be my next question is trying to nail you down a little bit more on this because, um, well, you know, we hate that, right? You know, the, the what and the when is, uh, yeah. And, 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 and the, what I believe, you know, the, what's pretty easy, right? We know what's inevitable, but the win is always, is, is always difficult or, or sure. really possible. Yep. Really. Um, but I was just curious, kind of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of analysts were, have been calling for this, you know, big crash next year, next 12, 18 months, whatever this deflationary crash stock market, you know, 60, 70, 80% crash, whatever. And then the government's response to that is to blow it all back up again. So it was kind of like a deflation, then inflation. I'm starting to see, well, shoot, if Biden wins and, and Yellen goes in, I mean, maybe we don't have that deflation first. Now, maybe we just keep going straight up from here. Um, and I guess that's kind of what you're saying. You're leaning more towards we maybe don't have that big deflation next year first. We just kind of keep going up. They're, act, they're, they're pre preemptively acting. <laughs> That's my base case. I mean, but it's, it, it, I would never say never on a crash, right? I mean, I, my base case is that they, they probably just kind of just keep on going. And you saw in March, the, you know, one, going into that crash, what we'd been saying was if equities fall 10 to 15% and stay down, you will quickly see the U.S. have a fiscal problem. You will see the treasury market begin to break. And people thought that was ludicrous at the time. And so the market crashed and it fell 15, 20. Market got down about 22%. All of a sudden the treasury, treasury market starts breaking. Treasury yields start rising rapidly. And it, to me, it was an absolute aha moment. It was very validating on some level, but it, that to me was a key moment because that, that tells you, I was wrong, it was 10 to 15. It was actually 15 to 20, 20%. Uh, but it was close enough for government work, shall we say. And, and the yeah. big picture is, is that stocks could fall very, very sharply. Uh, at some point on that down 50, 60, whatever you're talking about, you're going to start seeing yields rise. And you're not going to be allowed to happen, uh, in my view, just politically. And that's a separate discussion. Is that the right thing to do or not? It is what it is. Uh, and so to me, my base case is they paper over it there is risk you have some sort of big risk off air pocket. With that said, I think for 90% plus of traders, people, investors, 
it's going to be untradeable, uh, even more untradeable than what we saw in March, where you were either there or you weren't. If you're going to trade it, I would trade it, try to trade it with options and with derivatives where there's sort of defined downside and you either make a lot or you lose, you, you lose your investment because the, 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 the severity of the fiscal situation is such that if stocks were to fall sharply and stay down, you're going to start talk about risk of sovereign defaults around the world. And at that point, all bets are off. You know, when the, when the risk-free asset underpinning everything defaults, what's what's the value of a stock when the risk when when you know your collateral supporting the stock is defaulting? When the pay, it, yeah. I don't know. So when you say it's untradeable, you mean it would might be so fast that you really can't capture it, kind of like March, but even more compressed. So most exactly. people would probably just ride it right through. Um, exactly. If if I'm summarizing what you're saying, I mean, it almost seems like, especially going back to like the debt to GDP thing, and now you you know looking at the market, um, the Fed almost needs the stock market to stay high because of that GDP number. Like they can't let it fall, otherwise their debt to GDP is completely out of whack. So they're super incentivized to keep it up. Not not just to yeah. save the boomers, but because of their own need to have that GDP up. Their own need, no. And we first we first identified this issue back in 2014 for our for our clients. And we said we you know struck up a relationship with an accountant and pointed me some IRS data. And you start digging into the data, and you realize that 200. If you look at net capital gains plus taxable IRA distributions, those two numbers are around 200 percent of annual growth in personal consumption expenditures in the United States. And PCE is, it's basically consumer spending. So it's about two thirds of GDP. Uh, it's about a $14 trillion line item. And so it's not to say people are taking money out of net capital gains and, 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 tax, and IRAs and immediately buying boats, shopping at Walmart, whatever. And PCE is a wide category. There's some healthcare services stuff in it. But the point is, is that mathematically, it is almost impossible for PCE to grow if those two line items aren't doing their part, if, if, which means if stocks aren't rising, if assets aren't rising. And if PCE is not growing, it's almost mathematically impossible for GDP to rise. And if GDP is not rising, like we were just saying, once you get to a certain level on debt, you're screwed because now your rate is above your rate of growth. You're into a debt death spiral. And importantly, this is just net, net capital gains plus taxable IRA distributions, you know, especially you being out in California. I'm sure you've seen this firsthand is stock options, incentive stock is not included in any of those, either of those numbers that is taxed as ordinary income. And so what, it, what you take a step back, and I realized this in 2014, was, oh my God, there is no economy unless stocks rise ad infinitum on low volatility. Mm -hmm. And the first real big acid test of that thesis was in 2018, when S&P fell 20% in the fourth quarter, and then all of a sudden the consumer spending numbers in December and January were the worst for December and January since 1933. Yeah. And, yeah. and people say, oh my gosh, you you were right. And, and it was one of these sort of, you know, I had the hypothesis, I believe the math, you can never tell with government statistics entirely, right? Feel like you know it. But then when it happened, and then boom, immediately consumer spending uh, does what it does. They're stuck, they, they've created this system. And now they're having to deal with it. And it's it's it puts them in a corner. Yeah. Hey, I know we've uh, gone a little bit long. I have maybe like a couple more questions. You have a few more minutes? Sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> There's so many ways we could go down. I've been trying to kind of keep us on track, but uh, yeah, I know we're I know we're going a little bit long. Um, okay, so um, based off of all that, 
then if we're translating that, we've identified where you're looking at the bottlenecks. We've identified the problems, the, the solutions they potentially have, which ones you think are most inevitable probably. Um, so then I guess, where does that put us as investors? Like the thesis is that um, get out of currency because it's going to crash and move into hard real assets. Um, that's, you know, gold, Bitcoin commodities. Or is that, or, or by, by anything, is that, is that by stocks, by real estate, by anything that's going to go up because they're going to be printing to infinity? Yeah. If I had five seconds to say it, I want to own hard assets that are nobody else's liability. So it's gold, it's Bitcoin, it's silver. Then it starts to get, you know, yeah. Commodities, certain types of real estate. Cause I think real estate is in ways and in, in, in transition, certain types of equities, et cetera. But broadly speaking, yes, it's, it's, I, I, they have a problem. Uh, the bubble is in, it's not in everything bubble in assets. It's in everything. It's a bubble in, in sovereign debt and as a result in currencies. When you talk about that um, it, it, and everything bubble, everything's up. I mean, all three indexes are at the high all time highs, gold, silver, you know, well, not silver yet, but gold and Bitcoin are all time highs. I mean, real estate's at all time high. I mean, everything, but isn't that a lot of that just the dollar has lost its purchasing power compared to those assets. So, I mean, in, in it's really, short, in, yeah, in short, I mean, it is, it, it's, it's, if you adjust the S and P for the feds balance sheet, um, I mean, you can see the S and P absolutely pulled a 19 and people see, all the time you see the 1929 charts. Right. And, um, I think it's important when people show the 1929, 1933 down 80% stayed down 80% chart. I think it's critical to note, that was against gold. That wasn't against dollars, right? The, 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 the dollar was gold backed and pegged at $20 an ounce. And right. so the Dow fell 80% or 90% from 29 to 33 against gold, not against dollars. And so it's important to say, to, 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 to uh, distinguish, uh, um, differentiate between what it's falling against. So against gold, the S&P still is not back to September 2018 highs if I last time I checked. Uh, it's bounced, you know, recently, but it's still not back. Against Bitcoin, of course, everything's collapsed. Yeah. Um, and that's probably the best expression of what's, what's happening. Um, where, you know, that, that's telling you what's happening, right? It's almost like Super Bowl tickets in a way, right? The Fed can say, I, I've always thought it would be interesting for the Fed to run monetary policy and calculate inflation based on Super Bowl tickets because it's the same game. It's the same stadium. It's the same. I mean, it, the, the marginal entertainment value of Super Bowl 50 is no different than Super Bowl 25, so on and so forth. And yet the price is, you know, what are the scalping rates, right? I mean, they are, you know, you adjust for population, maybe you adjust for certain amounts of monetary, it would be a great tool to say <laughs> to, to, to the problem is, is it would bankrupt the U.S. because they would have to raise rates to seven or eight percent, right? That, well, that's what the CPI would should measure, but instead, the CPI instead of they, they would measure the the cost of Super Bowl tickets in the basket. But today, they'd give you the price of uh, tickets to your local um, Pop Warner football league. <laughs> they would have swapped that out in the CPI basket, right? That's kind of how it works. <laughs> and that's the challenge. This is a challenge for investors, right? Because it's it's quickly becoming. You know, you're, you know, you, you buy bonds, wear diamonds, buy bonds, wear cubic zirconium, buy bonds, wear a cracker jack on a string around your neck. And that's, yeah. that's where this is going. It's where, you know, unfortunately, uh, again, unless one of a couple things happen, all of which are fairly um, eventful in terms of either cuts or geopolitical, et cetera, um, that's kind of where you're at. And it's, 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 
it is, like I said, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the thesis that I've been uh, digging out and kind of talking about, right? Moving out of, as they're printing more fake counterfeit money, we want to buy real assets like hard things. And, and so um, I kind of see that. So gold, Bitcoin, you've talked about gold miners and things like that, get a little bit leverage on the gold, um, things like that. Now, um, I did see you say that you thought maybe in the short term, gold might do better. And I'm guessing you think that's because the Fed has an incentivized reason to push that higher? Or am I reading that wrong? You know what? I was, I, I, I'm trying to think how to phrase this best. I think there is a possibility that gold, that there will, I think there's a possibility, if not a likelihood, that there will be one last, so if you look at the, the Bitcoin to gold ratio, right, it has gone up and to the right. In other words, Bitcoin has outperformed gold, number of gold ounces to buy a Bitcoin has risen steadily. My view is there is a moment coming where that will drop one last time. Uh, in other words, gold will be revalued higher by central banks out of necessity, or there will be some sort of geopolitical, uh, what have you. Uh, and that's why I would not want to sell all, you know, you, you have this, you know, sell all your gold and buy Bitcoin. I don't think that's the right thing to do. And so it's, I, I think if, if setting that aside, I think Bitcoin continues to outperform gold. Uh, but I th just think you want to be cognizant of, you know, hey, this, because central banks have gold and they don't have Bitcoin, uh, because uh, the U.S. government, uh, you know, something we've talked about and one of the things we talked about as it related to that in terms of that could be a driver for uh, gold in this relative short run is conceivably one way for the U.S. to get out of its fiscal problem is just have Treasury tell the Fed to remonetize the gold at $10,000 an ounce. If you look at how that is calculated or how that would flow through the, the finances, that would uh, effectively, that whatever amount that is, uh, and I forget off the top of my head, but you know, multiple trillions of dollars, that would basically be credited to the Treasury's general account with the Fed. And then the Treasury could then spend those dollars directly into the US economy on infrastructure, UBI, war, whatever they want to spend the money on. The point is, is that it would be an increase in um, the uh, spending of the treasury. It would be an increase in GDP without a commensurate rise in the debt. And so it would be a big deleveraging event. And so when I take a step back and look at, gosh, how bad the US's fiscal position is, yes, it's good for Bitcoin. Yes, it's good for gold. You hear a lot of people say, well, it's way better for Bitcoin for all the reasons, and I agree. The one thing that Bitcoin doesn't have, or the biggest thing arguably that Bitcoin doesn't have that gold does is that the government could get out of its predicament. They could delever uh, significantly using the gold there. Um, and that's why I think that that could happen as it gets, when I say in the relative short term, um, you know, the situation's getting desperate, particularly if there's a second wave basically of, yeah. of, of COVID that, that shuts us all back down. So that's the thought process there. I think they both are winners. Yeah, I think, um, you know, gold has 5,000 years of history. And as you've already made the case, I mean, central banks are, are using it and they use it for their reserves, balance sheets, et cetera. And uh, they're not going to dump their gold to buy Bitcoin. I mean, not, not in the near term, in the next, you know, five years, whatever, 10 years. And so in the event of a currency crisis, the only way to maybe bring trust back into a currency might be to try to back it with something. And maybe that's where you get that ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 revaluation kind of number. So I think that's possible. It's a long shot, but I mean, shoot, if, if the currencies collapse, they may not have a choice. And so that might be it. But um, 
in regards to that, you did say something uh, earlier. You said that, uh, quote, it's no one's fault, um, kind of the, when, in regards to the debt and the spending that we have. It's no one's fault. It's human nature. And you're, and you're right. I mean, we, we understand human nature and, and human nature since the beginning of time has always tried to um, devalue currency, has always tried to create money for alchemy, whatever, right? Um, so we know it is human nature. But I think that is the big difference with Bitcoin versus gold is it takes human nature out of things. And so that was kind of a tweet that, that was going around, I think maybe with, with Preston and uh, like it was like, you know, the reason why Bitcoin's better is because it takes that out. Gold leads to the centralization. In order for me to send it to you in Ohio, I'm going to have to package it with armed guards and mail it right where bitcoin can be transferred and so but but the big thing is what you just said it's no one's fault and it's human nature bitcoin takes that human nature element out of it yep. um, but yeah it's all time frames and and uh trying to guess that is difficult and if things blow up i mean then chain what is it lennon said right uh decades happen in days or whatever so yep yep Okay. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think ultimately the Bitcoin Bitcoin does take that. It is. It's the hardest money there is. I, you know, there. Um, it, it does. It takes the human element away. And fascinatingly, the success of Bitcoin brings the revaluation of gold. It makes it more likely. It brings it forward because ultimately, you look at this and what do we need central banks for? Right. It takes it out of their hands and the human nature <laughs> being what it is, they're not going to stand by and do nothing. Right. Um, and I mean, we've already seen that a bit. And I, you know, the fact that, you know, they, you, you, they're, they're, they're going to try to regulate it. They'll, they'll do some regulation, but I'm not worried about that. I think it's, you know, ultimately probably if anything good for Bitcoin um, in terms of its institutional acceptance and, and, and growth from that standpoint. Um, but I think that the the more the, the more successful Bitcoin gets, the more likely a revaluation of gold becomes, uh, simply because, you know, again, human nature. They can control gold. So like, hey, let's make gold look more attractive to start to pull the appeal away from Bitcoin a little bit so we can still control it in gold, I guess. I think, I think something like that. And, and then also as well is, is, you know, as you start, you know, more, uh, you know, digitizing assets around the world, uh, you know, definancializing assets around the world, you, 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 what you're really doing is taking rehypothecation out of the mix, right? Where you have the same asset pledged however many times and, and supporting a certain amount of assets. And, and what that suggests is that if you believe that digitization of assets is an inevitable trend uh, over the next 10 years, then an asset play for people would be to own the assets currently that are the most financialized, the most rehypothecated. And arguably, there's nothing that's been more rehypothecated than gold sure. and, and silver. And so, and what I mean by that is 100 paper promises out, maybe more, maybe 50, whatever, but there's 50 to 100 to maybe more paper promises out for gold for every physical ounce that exists uh, is the estimated numbers. No one knows for sure. It's a very opaque market. And so if you do get a digitization of assets where suddenly that leverage is taken out of the system, uh, the only way to fix that is by the price going up enormously as those assets are digitized. Now we can make the case, well, no one's gonna want gold because a block, because a Bitcoin, in that case it goes, maybe, but I, I think 6 billion people with 5,000 years of history, you know, uh, with gold of 5,000 years of history, you know, five, 6 billion people in Eurasia probably get the last word on that. I have a hard time believing culturally that will be removed. And so my guess is, um, 
that the way it's resolved is is you know sort of uh, by a significant run up in the underlying value. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there. You've given us more than enough of your time and definitely the big picture. Uh, you've identified the bottlenecks, where you see the, uh, the two options, which one you think is most likely, and then how we play that. So you've definitely given us more than enough. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation. I, I appreciate your time. Um, so I guess, what's the best place for people to uh, follow you more? I mean, obviously, we already talked about you're active on Twitter. Um, <laughs> is that the best place to keep up with you? Or you also have the newsletter as well? Yeah, we uh, you check out our website, fftt-llc.com. Uh, uh, find out more information about what we're up to. And if you're interested in finding out more about uh, our different research product offerings, uh, we've got uh, retail product offering, also some institutional offerings as well. And, and uh, um, a lot of great feedback on that newsletter you're referring to, Tree Rings. And then, of course, like you said, pretty, pretty active on Twitter at, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Got it. All right, we'll make sure to link all that in the notes down below. And uh, thanks, Luke, so much. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking to you, Mark. A lot of fun and uh, happy holidays to you. All right. Thanks. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. Sorry we went a little bit long, but uh, no, that's okay. They're great to questions. Talk about. What's that? Yeah, there, there is. It's fascinating how much is going. I mean, my, my thinking on Bitcoin and gold keeps evolving, really, quite frankly. I mean, it was, I mean, I've owned Bitcoin since 2013. Um, and I talked to a couple. They, they put me on, I originally bought it because I have a relationship with a couple guys who made their first fortune shorting subprime mortgages. And then they owned, I don't know how much, they're one of these guys that were down buying Bitcoin at, you know, out of Guatemala, at, you know, two bucks, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and, and they made their second fortune that way. And they get turned me on to it in 2013. I owned a bunch, but I sold most of it. Uh, as startup capital for FFTT, which was not a bad thing. I had a, I had a hundred acre farm and I sold Bitcoin as my startup capital. So yeah. it wasn't a bad thing. Um, I probably ended up slightly ahead actually, surprisingly. Uh, uh, but now really seeing the, the evolution of Bitcoin, the institutionalization of it, um, I think you're seeing the government start to bless it, quite frankly. Like I, my view on that is really shifting. Yeah. Well, Larry Fink, Larry Fink uh, gave it, gave it his a word of blessing. Right. So, uh, yeah. I mean, you have that and I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, definitely something amazing. I, I mean, I started, I started my whole thing just to talk about Bitcoin. So that, that's like all of them, but I became a gold bug after 2008 getting wiped out in real estate. I learned how to make money really well, sold a couple of businesses. I did a, I had a fortune 500 exit on an internet company. Um, and uh, then I got wiped out and I'm like, what is this whole financial casino thing going on over here? Right. And so I learned about gold. And so I've always been this gold bug. Um, and I, and I still am, but I just, I, I think it's kind of a generational shift where, as you said, 5,000 years of history and the boomers and the central banks, but the millennials are going to buy Bitcoin. And it's like that generational shift. Maybe people won't sell their gold for Bitcoin, but all the new money will go to Bitcoin almost maybe a thing. So um, yeah, and I think it's yeah, I think it's generational. I also think too, there's you know, um, there's the giants, and then there's everybody else, right? So like, you know, Saudi and Russia, and you know, when you're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions, like they're not, they're not gonna, not anytime soon, like you said. What um, about you know, what about this though? So um, there's about somewhere between thirty to forty trillion parked in offshore bank accounts. Oh. And those bank accounts have been getting seized. I mean, it's been happening more and more and more. And if there's 30 to 40 trillion sitting in offshore bank accounts, I mean, what's Bitcoin? It's an unseizable Swiss bank account in your head. And like how much of that market could it grab? It's way bigger than gold. It's, it's, it's absolutely huge. And that's, 
that's really it's like one of the where my thinking keeps evolving on it of exactly in that way where to me sell gold to buy bitcoin i think is the wrong thing to do i think it's sell bonds to buy bitcoin sell you know you know keep as little basically run the cat i think people should keep more cash in their balance sheet than the u.s government has in other words when you go back to that deflationary you know collapse right i don't think it's going to last very long you want to make sure you have enough cash that you can survive that period and go broke one day later than the u.s government will go broke and we know that number is not that long and so all the other cash that you would keep there you know again everyone's business is concerned different but your whatever your cash burn rate is keep it a day a week a month longer whatever you're comfortable with than the u.s government and then like you said um it's it's you know bitcoin clearly gaining share um uh, and and that's um that's very it's it's just because it is such a hard when you look at these when you look at the issues that i've been identifying for so long i think it is finally getting you know it had the proof of work but i think in the last 12 months it's really been sort of proof of concept right where the institutions are now going okay and it to your point it could evolve super fast yeah i'm curious um is this uh this as you're saying hold hold cash like one day longer than what the fed can do and you know this whole thing that we've been setting up are you sitting back almost licking your chops like this is going to be the biggest event of my life kind of a thing Uh, like looking at it more like hey this is going to be so big and people are most people get wrecked some people are going to come out ahead and like the wealth transfer and like this is like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, like I'm, I'm ready for this, or uh, well, I don't know. Are, are you, are you looking at it like that at all, or is it more like fearful? Or, and I get, I get a lot of people are gonna be damaged. I'm just talking about you personally. Personally, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be just fine in it. Um, that's, you know, but it, it's gonna be one of these things where. I think it could end up really, really good for everybody involved, or it could end up in an utter catastrophe. And so I know where I'm at. I'm excited about where I'm at. I'm going to be fine either way. Where I start, where where I'm looking for is almost the derivative of, if this is managed properly, we could have the biggest economic boom since uh, after World War II. And if it's not managed properly, we're gonna have the biggest catastrophe. We're gonna we're gonna have a catastrophe, the biggest catastrophe since World War II. Um, one of the big advantages to doing what I do in Cleveland, out of Cleveland, is is from a macro perspective. For a long time, people go, "You doing macro in Cleveland?" It's <laughs> but it's becoming really an advantage. It's become really an advantage. Is people on the coasts haven't lost? They haven't lost in fifty years. They had the little, you know, they had the wipeout in 08, and it was bad, but it was it was down up. It was it was sort of right. Well, the, from 2008, I mean, it dropped 60 percent in 12 months. It bottomed in about 2012-13, right? And it came back by 2018. Right, right. So it's back. It's you. It's a down and up. And but for 50 years, it's like, and then particularly you know, you know the East Coast, Washington. Yeah. They they've never really lost. Whereas I've seen, I've lived, you know. I've watched us lose to China. People say, well, we can't lose to China. We're America. I'm in Cleveland. I watched it. Yeah. Like, so they're doing these things. When are we going to wake up? And we're starting to wake up. And, and, 
um, you know, I think COVID was a big role in that. When you get the East Coast going, wait, we can't get supplies because we have to beg China for them, which was effectively what was happening. Yeah. Um, then all of a sudden, that's, I think it changed the views. I think COVID changed a lot of views about where we were really positioned as a country. And so I think if we start doing some things that, you know, when you talk about infrastructure, when you talk about uh, reshoring, what have you, um, boy, it could be so good. When you rebalance things rather than, you know, we run these big deficits and people in the treasury export business get rich here and people in the, you know, export goods export business in Asia get rich uh, and their country gets, you know, you, you, you start to basically go in the other direction and sort of everybody can win. The loser in that case is bondholders. And yeah. at the end of the day, you know, bondholders are increasingly central banks. And if central banks lose, what do they have to stay solvent? That tells you, it takes you back to gold in some way, right? Where you, you want to own some gold because gold's probably the, the, the collateral that gets written up to keep their balance sheet, you know, okay. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I'm really at with it, which is, I do think it's going to be the biggest event in our lifetimes. I do think that. And then, okay, what does that mean? Is that really good or really bad? But I think we're sort of coming up on that fork in the road and you know like uh uh, uh what's his name uh the, the yankees catcher uh uh yogi berra right when you come to a yeah. fork in the road take it <laughs> yeah well the the i guess the big thing is like uh you know if you're on a deserted deserted island with a with a billion dollars what good does that billion dollars do you um and so you could do super good but if the majority of people do really really bad uh, what, what good is that right so yeah, and that's how I've had that discussion with a couple of guys, you know, a couple of Bitcoin guys. It's like, well, the, the, the third party, non-trusted third party is, is a huge advantage. 100% agree. I, I get it. That said, if the world's melting down, like we're, you know, you, no trust, you know, a, a brick of firewood is going to be, you know, you know, five Bitcoin, you yeah. know, it's, you know, and otherwise you're going to freeze, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, again, thanks for, th thanks for being so generous with your time. It was great. Um, so absolutely. Thanks for having me on Mark. We'll catch you on Twitter. That sounds great, bud. Take care. Okay. See ya. All right. Bye-bye.